I said to myself, cut that out. You're going to be as black as you want to be. And if there's a space that doesn't allow you to do that, then it's not the space for you. Welcome to The Limits. I'm Jay Williams. It doesn't get any realer than that. Spoken by Amanda Seals, a.k.a. Amanda Diva, as she went by in her VJ days, a.k.a. one not to be played with. As you'll hear in our conversation, the multi-hyphenate actor, comedian, host, and writer always tells it like it is. You might know Amanda from her starring role as the resident bougie baddie frenemy, Tiffany Dubois, on Issa Rae's hit show, Insecure. Molly, there are place cards. I didn't design my own font, so you could sit just where you wanted. But her stellar work on Insecure is just a fraction of everything Amanda can do. Alongside acting, she's hosted talk shows, game shows, and award shows on the biggest networks. And her all-time greatest love is stand-up comedy. In 2019, she became the second black woman to have her own comedy special on HBO, ever. Now y'all keep asking me, Amanda, who is this special for? And I keep telling y'all, it's for my sisters. But it's comedy, so it's really for everybody. Okay, maybe not for everybody. Everybody except for racists, rapists, sexists, misogynists, narcissists. Plus, she's an Ivy League graduate, and education has always been at the forefront of her life. So let's break it down. From hip-hop to socioeconomic issues to mental health, she knows it and she could talk about it in depth. Amanda does just that in her podcast, Small Doses, Potent Truths for Everyday Use. But potent truths can also bring on everyday backlash. She's had her share of toxicity on social media. You know, sometimes depending on something I have said, my DMs like to overflow uh, with an abundant amount of ignorance. That said, she's never let any of that stop her. Instead, she's embraced her bold opinions and diverse creative interests to propel her career even further. It often seems like Amanda is in 10 places at once. And right now, she's on the road, touring with her stand-up and her variety game show, Smart, Funny, and Black. So that's where we begin today. Here's more from my conversation with the great Amanda Seals. Can you talk to me about how Smart, Funny, and Black originated and what it represents to you. Uh, when I was living in New York, I was performing stand-up all over. And what would happen is that a lot of Black comics who didn't perform a particular style of Black comedy were being relegated to like this other kind of purgatory space. It's like, well, you're not white, but you're also not doing this traditional like comic view, deaf comedy jam style of Black comedy. So then like, what are you? Mm. There were so many of us, though, who may have had a different delivery style, but we still had the same topical nature. You know, we still wanted to speak to our black experience and to black audiences. And so I was doing shows at this venue that said, hey, we'd love to give you a weekend and see what you do with it. And I was like, OK. And they said, what type of audience would you want to bring in? I said, I want to bring in a smart, funny black audience. You know what? Let's hmm. just call the show smart, funny and black. And then when I moved to Los Angeles, um, there were just a lot of shows out here. They call it comedy with a catch. Mm. And everybody is kind of like trying to figure out a format that could become a TV show. And so it just hit me like, oh, what if you did it as a game show? I love games. I love using my brain. And this would also be a way for me to feel good about the immense amount of money I spent on my college loans because <laughs> I can use <laughs> I can use my master's in African American studies from Columbia in this show. And so I crafted Smart Funny and Black as a game show and I've been building it steadily. 
uh, as an independent creative since then. It's gone from being at the back of a comic book store to selling out the Kendi Center several times. And we Mm. are looking to continue to scale. I mean, it's so authentic to who your brand is. Like you live it, you breathe it each and every single day. So is this one of those scenarios where the game show kind of energy, the thought process just kind of bleeds into your everyday life? Is that where you gather all your material? It's actually not the case because my everyday life at this point just feels like I'm constantly inundated with just the bad news of our current state of affairs. And so this ends up being escapism. It ends up being a space and a place to get away from that in order to revitalize and reinvigorate ourselves for the fight that has to continue outside of it. And that's what I really aspire for the show to do for people, to give them just a space of joy in the midst of the collapse. What is the collapse to you? Where are we right now? We are in an era of the empire. Uh, Any Star Wars fans out there know that we are watching the fall of not just democracy, but we early on started to see the fall of intellect. And then we saw the fall of integrity. And now we are seeing what that becomes when so many people who don't live by those things are empowered. Mm. So the collapse for me is witnessing the reign and the elevating of the worst parts of our society into roles of leadership. Wow. You know, I, we had Tracy Oliver on my show a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about something similar about where we are and about as being young black people, it's our job to keep leading spearheading these type of intimate conversations with people about how we see the world, about what our vision is, about where we want to go. She collaborated with Issa Rae as well, as well as you did. You start with her in Insecure. Can you take me to the beginning about how that came to be and how you felt being on that scene getting started? I auditioned and I got the part. That, it was that easy? Yeah, you do four auditions and then, you know, you get the role and that's how it goes. I mean, I think there's some sort of a romanticism that people have around like the way things happen in Hollywood or particularly black Hollywood. And it doesn't operate much different than Hollywood, Hollywood. (laughs) Um, But I mean, I, I was able to audition for the show and originally was actually called in for the role of we call her jalapeno poppers. Uh, And (laughs) I got to the audition and was just like, you know, I'm not going to get this part. Like when I'm looking at the sisters that were in the room and when I'm looking at the breakdown and it's asking for, you know, a voluptuous sister, I'm like, Mm. you know, I'm shaped like an iPhone. You know, I got curves like in the right places, but ultimately I'm proportional. So I was like, you know, this is not going to happen. So I went into the audition. I was speaking to the casting director and I was like, listen, you know, I'm not going to get this role. So is there anything else I can read for? And she's like, oh, Amanda, you know, you can play any part. And I'm like, touche. However, like you, you wouldn't even, you would not cast me for this. So what's a role that you think you would cast me for? And she was like, well, read for this other role. It's a early thirties Ivy League graduate. And I was like, oh, Hmm. you mean like me? (laughs) And so that's when I read for Tiffany Dubois and three auditions later, three callbacks later, I should say in a screen test, I got the role. I want to go back to something that you said real quick. You said um, people act or they romanticize about black Hollywood being different than regular Hollywood. Well, I think there's this idea that like black Hollywood is radical and that we're all like all on the same page to overturn the system. You know what I mean? (laughs) And, 
you know, that's just simply not the case. I mean, I think opportunism finds its way through black Hollywood in the same ways that it does in Hollywood, Hollywood. And I think that's just more so a reflection of the actual field uh, Mm. versus like our cultural, ethnic and racial backgrounds. I think for me, when I got thrusted into the limelight as a young black male athlete, I naturally felt this weight that I was supposed to carry the representation of the black community for right or wrong. And everything that I did, it either got criticized or got polarized by the media to a degree. I was thinking about this because I know on the fifth and final season premiere of Insecure, your character, Tiffany, were an official Greek paraphernalia from Alpha Kappa Alpha, a.k.a. an historically black sorority, which, by the way, my mom is a part of that sorority. But you, in real life, Amanda Seals, weren't actually part of a sorority. So when this prompted a backlash on social media from AKAs, how did you take that? Did it bother you? I was genuinely shocked because I just was like, do y'all not know that I'm not playing myself? Like, I'm a character on a TV show. Hmm. And I think people fall in love with a show as if it's an individual person. And then they're reacting to it in the same way. People were just like, I can't believe Amanda Seals is disrespecting the AKA insignia. She's not an AKA. Like, how dare Amanda Seals disrespect our sorority, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And it's like, you know, reality TV has really blurred the lines for people. And they genuinely, I feel like, catch themselves in these weird spaces where they don't delineate the difference between a scripted series and a reality show. I think social media also does that, too. I was talking to Coleman Domingo about this, and he was... He's incredible, incredible. Mm. And he was describing to me, Amanda, the process of how he digs deep into a character. Now, I got to tell, I'm going to tell you now, though. Okay. I don't have a deep process of digging into a character. Oh, how do you do it? I am a comedian before an actor. And that's something I learned later in life. Actors really have a, like they genuinely find parts of themselves in the crafting of another identity. And I don't. I am able to act. I'm a very good actor. I'm trained. I have been in that space for my whole life. But I would be remiss if I, if I gave myself the same level of credit as like a Coleman Domingo or like a, da- uh, a Daniel Kaluuya in, in, in the way that they immerse themselves in a the character. It's like I identify the character. I know exactly how, it's, how I want to do it. And then I just do it. And one thing I did hear about Coleman is that he is able to turn on and turn off. Mm. And I'm the same way. There's no method acting here. Like, it's like, we had a scene in Insecure where I had to cry because I was going through postpartum depression, season four. Mm -hmm. And uh, after the first take, our director and showrunner, the great Prentice Penny, came over. He put his arm on my shoulder. He's like, you know, you how are you? And I was like, oh, I'm good. What are you talking about? That was acting. That was acting. (laughs) (laughs) He was like, God damn it. (laughs) Like... You know, I mean, to me, when I make myself cry, it's a, it is like fascinating. I'm always like, y'all see that? Look at that. So wait, but wait, that's, you know, that's not normal, right? You know, no, like people just can't make themselves cry or like well, just tap into can. something. Oh my, I can't with you. Yeah. Why women can. It's, <laughs> we've seen that. Oh, man. <laughs> okay. Let me, let me transition here and try to pivot as eloquently as I can off of that. When I say Amanda Diva, ha! Ha! <laughs> who is it and who does she embody? Um, Amanda Diva. 
Amanda Diva was a moniker that I ended up uh, taking on when I was a freshman in college and I started doing spoken word. Now, when I was in high school, I got the nickname Diva because I was a part of a clique on campus called the Divas. There was a clique is a loose word, but it was more so like a unofficial sorority. Mm. And then there was an unofficial fraternity called Trey Deuce. And these were theater groups. So it was like a big deal to get inducted into, you know, the divas. And so once I was inducted, I would write diva everywhere. And the people who didn't know what this was just started calling me diva because it was kind of like my tag as if I was like a graffiti artist. Mm. And so when I got to college, like that just kind of kept with me. By then I had a tramp stamp of it, Lord. And... um <laughs> You and really so, got the tattoo? Yeah, really I really, it? I got it with the tribal, you know, I really, <laughs> I am, you, you I, just, I am a You fully living, immerse yourself in it. Yes, yes, yes. yes. I am a living example of late 90s tattoo artistry. Um, <laughs> a vessel, if you will. So I went to do, I went to do spoken word at this place called the Sugar Shack in Harlem and you had to sign up. And when I signed up, I put Amanda and then I just felt like that wasn't enough. And so I put diva, but I put it in parentheses. <laughs> and um, the host ended up introducing me as Amanda Diva. And I was like, oh, that has a nice mm. ring to it. And then I did well. I, I did well at the performance. And so the other poets came up to me after. And were like, oh, Amanda Diva. Amanda Diva. And I was like, oh, I guess that's my name now. And so I mm. ran with it. And I ran. And I ran. You just ran? Yes, I ran for 10 years with the name Amanda Diva and... You know, it was a very exciting time. It was my 20s. You know, it was a very exciting time. I was a host on MTV, on MTV2, Sucker Free Sunday. Mm -hmm. um, I remember. You know, I, ho I mean, I've hosted on every, like, music platform. VH1, MTV, uh, Fuse. <laughs> like, I've been on all of them. Music Choice. And I was really, just really, really immersed in hip-hop as not only a host, but then also as a performer. So I've released independent albums. I'm on Q-Tips album, The Renaissance. Mm -hmm. um, I performed with The Roots. Like, I mean, I had like a really robust experience in music. And around, you know, 2930, like my Saturn return, I just started to feel a disconnect from hip hop and just also from the music business, like had started to make me not like music. Hmm. And that's always a dangerous thing with creativity and commerce, you know, and just the way that it has to exist for a creative to be able to live off of their work. You're going to have to be within the commercial space, but it is not a seamless interaction. And oftentimes, if you don't have the right support system or, you know, you just don't have the right knowledge, it can eat you up. And so at a certain point, I just started to realize that I... I needed to pivot. And the first thing I did in pivoting was change my name back to Amanda Seals. When we get back, Amanda dives into the art of authentic commentary in a landscape of clickbait, fake news, and false narratives. We'll also hear what it's like to be a black woman in stand-up comedy, an industry with some pretty narrow ideas about what black women need to be in order to succeed. This is The Limits from NPR. I'm Jay Williams. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Did you know you could reduce the number of unwanted calls and emails with online privacy protection? The latest innovation from Discover. 
Discover will help regularly remove your personal info, like your name and address, from 10 popular people search websites that could sell your data. And they'll do it for free. Activate in the Discover app. See terms and learn more at discover.com slash online privacy protection. Welcome back to The Limits. My guest today is Amanda Seals. She's a comedian, but also she's so much more than that. I mean, really, she's done it all. From BJing to hosting, stand-up, singing, acting, pretty much you ask it, she's done it. But being someone who does it all doesn't always have its advantages. I'm curious, throughout your entire journey in the entertainment business, do you feel like anything has held you back? Me. (laughs) When you're this kind of person, it ends up holding you back sometimes. What's this kind of person mean? Well, in a, in a number of ways. So like being a multi-hyphenate at one point was not a thing. You know, people saw you being a multi-hyphenate as you being unfocused. And so there was a point in time where I was told, well, it's kind of like you're a jack of all trades, but a master of none. You know, it's kind of like you do a bunch of things, but not anything really. You know, you're, you're not really a committed person to one field. And so we don't know what to do with you. So mm. that was a very frustrating space to be in and I spent like two years in that space which may not feel like a long time but at that time it felt like forever also because you don't know where the end of it is and stand-up was really what brought me out of that because when I really discovered stand-up I realized huh here's a medium where if I can be proficient in it allows me to also be a host to also be a writer to also be a producer to also infuse my singing etc And instead of it being looked at as detractors, it gets looked at as assets. And that was such a unique thing um, to discover. So like that's what stand-up ended up doing for me. So then there's also just the idea of I'm a very direct person. I'm also a very fair person. And this is not a fair world. So when you're a fair person and you demand fairness, people are offended by that. People are disrupted by that. And when you're a black woman doing it, people feel disrespected by that because Mm. at the end of the day, whether they admit it or not, they don't think it's your place to make any demands. Hmm. I really want to dig into that for a second because I wanted to ask you about race. You did an HBO comedy special in 2019. The only second black woman to ever do so, by the way, applause and cheers to you for doing that. But how do you think race has affected your career overall? I mean, I think, you know, for a lot of people, they're fearful about talking about race because they think it's going to besmirch their image. They think it's going to like hold them back or make people feel like they're too controversial to to be worked with. For me, I think my candor as well as my knowledge about race have always been driving forces in my career than retractive forces. Like, so during that time I told you where I was like, what do I do? You know, people are telling Mm -hmm. me that I I do everything and nothing. I was really trying to find my way. And one of the things people kept telling me was, you know, you need to stop talking about race and like all these like social justice things. Like that's not what people want to hear. Like you need to really just be like the it girl, you know, you need to cross over. You know, you you, like, I remember distinctly being told, you got to get the white girls to like you. Once you get the white girls to like you, the sky's the limit. Like that was like an actual like, goal that <laughs> that someone had set for me. And when you're in that type of space where you're like, I don't know, it's like when you have COVID and you're like, 
If someone tells me that if I drink frog leg tea with the hair of a raccoon right now that I will feel better, then I will do it. Get me the frog legs. Get me the tea. You know, like, sorry, PETA. But, like, if someone tells me that because you feel like you know what I'm saying? So you're just taking you're just taking information from wherever you can get it. So when someone had told me that, I was like, well, damn, maybe they're right. And so I started doing that dance of trying to adjust myself and, like, fit into this, you know, kind of suit that had been made for me by this I, by this concept and then I went and saw 12 years a slave and literally <sighs> when I saw 12 years a slave I stepped outside the theater and she, you know I said to myself cut that shit out you're gonna be as black as you want to be and if there's a space that doesn't allow you to do that then it's not the space for you what is being black to you Amanda being black to me is honoring and protecting our innovation our bodies, <laughs> our culture, and empowering our community to continue to do that and also to utilize and activate their own power for their agency. You know, it's everybody that I have on this pod has a different definition of what being black to them means. And it's so beautiful to hear because being black is not being monolithic, right? You can be a variety Correct. of different things. And on your podcast, Small Doses with Amanda Seals, like I've listened to it. You give little doses of yourself in such a variety of ways, whether you're talking about politicians, artists, activists. I mean, the list goes on and on about it. How do you approach breaking new ground in your conversation? With authenticity first, always. I typically don't find myself breaking new ground unless I can genuinely connect to it. Because at this point, I feel like there's a lot of people that truly respect my voice and mm. I have a responsibility to that. You know, I take that very seriously and I'm honored by it. So in the breaking new ground of things, I'm very tenuous about doing so when it's things that I don't have any knowledge of. Mm. You know, we're just in this era where like urgency is somehow become more valuable than accuracy. You ain't wrong about that. I, gotta, <laughs> you know? I mean, that's, that's media in general. I got to be first. Yes. Yes. I got to be first. It doesn't matter what I put out there as long as I'm the first one to put out there. And then because of that and because everyone's got on board with it, there's no level of ethics like there used to be in terms of the fact checking of that and the correcting of that. I mean, when you watch movies like The Paper or like All the President's Men and you just see how high the standard was for like checks and balances and sources <laughs> and a stronger source and another source, you know, like all of that was so important. And now in the, in the world of just being first, those things have become irrelevant. How do you deal with that though? How do you deal with the balance of let me be first as opposed to let me be reserved and gather all the intel first? I don't have any pressure to be first. I'm not a journalist, so I'm not in the same space as you, but even just in the comedy space, like you definitely see people like, think about like Chris Rock and Will Smith. Like everybody's like, I want to be the first one to have the funniest joke. You know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? But I've just come to understand that like that never really matters. I don't know why we're still subscribing to it because being first ends up being irrelevant if something with more substance or someone with a more substantive point of view or a funnier joke comes later. <laughs> like what was the value of the first? Let's talk about how you express yourself because you've hosted 
<laughs> there's such a dichotomy between these two worlds, right? You've hosted the BET Awards as well as <laughs> Bring the Funny for NBC. And yes. I'm going to ask you straight up, have you code switched ever before for your audience? Oh, I'm sure I have unintentionally. I've grown up in a number of different spaces where I don't even necessarily think I'm code switching as much as I'm identifying my audience. Mm. And the goal is to get the best outcome as possible, right? So if I'm talking to like a bunch of dudes on the block in Harlem, like I'm not going to use the same entry points of conversation. I'm not even going to use the same vernacular as if I'm talking to like the business affairs lawyer at my agency. Yes. <laughs> Makes sense, right? It's not code switching. Yeah, I don't necessarily think it's code switching as much as if it's just like knowing which tool is better to get the job done. Like I'm going to need a Phillips screwdriver for this. I'm going to need a hammer for these people. And I think, you know, some might say, well, that is code switching and so be it. But the goal has never been to do so in order to gain favor, in order to ameliorate myself to a party that wouldn't respect me otherwise. That is not the reason why it's happening. I feel that so much. When your personal brand is tied to your income, like it is for me, it's all too easy to stick to what makes everyone around you happy. But Amanda took the risk of honoring her authentic voice and found a devoted following because of it. Being unabashedly honest in an industry that feeds off fantasy and stereotypes can take a toll on anyone's mental health. So next up, Amanda actually shares how she handles this stress. This is The Limits from NPR. I'm Jay Williams. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Limits. I've been speaking to comedian Amanda Seals about how her identity shapes her work. One thing Amanda and I actually have in common is we both attribute a lot of our success to the way we were raised. So I asked her about that foundation, her upbringing, and most importantly, her education. Back to the show. I was in Los Angeles, that's where I grew up. Uh, when I was eight, we moved to Orlando, largely in part because I tested gifted and my mom found out that I wouldn't be able to just go to a magnet school for the gifted in LA. I would have to like be in a lottery. Hmm. And basically she was like, I don't want to gamble with your education, which is essentially what a lottery is, right? And we were fortunate enough for her to be able to relocate. And so we moved to Orlando and I ended up being able to go to a series of great schools, Palm Lake Elementary and Southwest Middle School and the mm. great Dr. Phillips High School, 24276. <laughs> um, and I will always tell people, like, I am definitely a benefiter of middle class privilege, of light skin privilege. Some would say I get pretty privilege, but it is absolutely education privilege that has been the number one reason why I feel like I've been able to carve the path I've gone. Because I've had access to educators who genuinely cared and who were also given enough resources to deal with students individually. Did you ever feel as if it was a negative thing that you were black and educated growing up? I don't know that the black part was a part of it, but I always, it, it always felt like there was always somebody ready to tell me like, you think you all that because you're smart. And it's like, no, you think I'm all that because I'm smart. I'm really just trying to get in good with you and eat lunch together, but it's fine. Uh, <laughs> but, hey, so... I think it was um, more so just kind of like a you think you know everything, like you're a know-it-all. And a lot of times it wasn't even like I'm trying to 
make people feel dumb. I'm thinking that my greatest asset is that I know the answer to this thing and I'm gonna share it. You know, like it would be like, oh, you think you're an encyclopedia? And I'm like, oh, thank you. And they're like, that's a diss. I'm like, oh, okay. Hmm. Well, you brought up the stereotype, though, of, of talking white. And there's a there's a mental health component that comes along with that. Charlemagne was the second guest on my show ever, Amanda. Oh, wow. Okay. And he actually cited you specifically as one of the people that really made him address his own mental health. Yes. Where are you on mental health? How do you approach it in this generation of clicks and social media interaction? Um, I mean, I'm a very big just supporter of therapy in its most traditional form and also in whatever forms work for you, right? Like not everybody really gets something out of talking to this objective party, but whatever form of therapy works for you, I think it's up to everybody to explore and to try to find because it really is a tall order to think that you can have a healthy mind when we exist in a toxic environment. Mm. So it's a consistent effort that has to be put forth to manage that. And there's a lot of folks that have built their, particularly in entertainment, who have built their brand off of a certain disposition that doesn't necessarily lend itself to being candid or expressing anger. They're like having to hold those things back. I at one point was really suffering from mental health because I was really trying to suppress those things about me because I felt like it was sullying my image and it was really kind of getting in my own way. And it was like an albatross around my neck that people thought I was angry or that, you know, people think I'm mean, et cetera, et cetera. And it took real work with my therapist as well as adding affirmations and going to Mm. Reiki and boxing and really just pouring into myself and not in a selfish way, but in a self-aware way, pouring into myself to rebuild my confidence from a place of self-love versus of self-worth. And the reason I'm going to say that is because so many of us base our confidence off of what we've accomplished and the value that others have placed on us versus what we have identified for our own value. Well, you know, I have a therapist as well. And I think having somebody that can help you crystallize how you speak to one another really lays out a great foundation to move forward on. And some people just, they look over that. Well, I'll, I'll figure it out myself. But you won't. You don't even have the tools to. You don't even have the tools to. And that's like totally fine. I think that's the part. It's like we put this like undue pressure on ourselves to figure something out that we just genuinely don't have the capability to because we don't even grow up in a society that teaches us how to. But then Mm. you learn and you can apply it and you can remind your partner by like saying, you know, the therapist said, which is way better than me saying I said, Yes, you know. That creates, I I mean, I cannot stress how helpful that is because it immediately brings you back to like a safe metal ground because the therapist said that. I'm not trying to accuse you of this. I'm not that. Remember when we was at the therapist? We were at the therapist. We, we, as a unit, we were there and she had pointed this out. And then you, and then you acknowledge how it affects you. And then you, you know what I mean? Like you learn how to have like curiosity as compassion. You learn how to Mm. have kindness as a bottom line. And it is a lot, it is such a 
crazy unlearning of habits that so much of so many of us have to have just to be in a relationship. Have you ever wanted to have your own family? Um, not really. Yeah. I think I was I was always like I'm open to this if it happens. I actually I I have been pregnant before and I do a whole episode on my podcast about going through my miscarriage and just that experience. Hmm. But I think for me I was never the girl who was like I can't wait to be a mom. And let me tell you, like that is a feeling so many women have. And I think it's like a very strong and real and powerful feeling to have that, which is why and, and, and those people end up being really strong and more often than not end up being really strong and powerful and effective parents, which is why the repeal of Roe v. Wade ends up being <laughs> so much more than just, oh, a law. Like having a baby is not the same as raising a person. And it is incredibly short-sighted to then say, well, if they don't want to raise the person, there's someone who does. Because... It just also discounts the reality that like anything coming from a forced situation doesn't necessarily have to be the best thing. Like if, if a woman doesn't want to have a baby, she should not be expected to have a baby. And this baby shouldn't be expected to now be brought into a world where someone has to want it. <laughs> and then you think everything is all good, but then that person has to grow up wondering where they came from and, you know, dealing with the realities of that. And that's not an easy process for everybody. No matter how much their adoptive parents love them, that's not an easy process for somebody, for everybody. So to just callously think that that's something you can just throw out in the world for people to have to deal with, with you don't have to deal with it, is beyond my scope of comprehension and brings me back to we have darkness rising. But for me, I also look at the collapse and I just don't, I don't want to bring a person into this. <laughs> I'm at it. I, I think that's what speaks to your genius. I just asked you such a serious personal question and you were able to take that question answer the question while also addressing some issues that are happening roe versus wade the collapse you know your opinion about strong women and mothers the ability to tie all those two together have you ever stopped for a second and thought damn i'm pretty i'm really good at this because it's not you use comedy to deflect anger while you also educate at the same time it's it's such a um a roller coaster ride. Yeah, it's a, it's a gift. It's so damn special. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. You know, part of affirmations is you being like, I'm good at this. I'm good at this. <laughs> <laughs> Got to say it to yourself before somebody else does, you know? You know, and and not doing it because you're lying to yourself, but doing it because you're reminding yourself of like, this is my strength and I get to, I get to do this. I feel so honored to get to do my strength. Think about how so many people don't get to actually live in their strength every day. Huh. Do, we would have a completely different world if everybody got the opportunity to live in their strength and live because of their strength. And it's not something I take lightly. My role for myself in that way and my role for others in living that way, both as like, an example that you can pursue your strength as well, but also just as a voice. I'm on this tour. I'm on my Black Outside Again tour. And really so much of the response has been, I'm just so glad I got to see someone say what I've been thinking. Mm. Because the noise, the cacophony of wickedness is very overwhelming right now. And it's gaslighting those of us with sanity and with actual like love in our hearts. It's gaslighting us into thinking that we're bugging 
you know, or that, or that we shouldn't have hope. Hmm. And that's, that's the effort that is at hand. Like they want you to think that they're more powerful than you and they're not. One of the beautiful things about this opportunity for me to, to host this pod is I get a chance to create a cheat code, right? I talk to incredible people and for me to extract information out and then make that information applicable to my life. So, mm. you know, one of the things, any cheat codes, any life hacks that you have to get ahead that you yep. think you could share with us? Yes. Walk away from something when it goes from being a challenge to a stress. Mm. Let me write, I got write this down. I'm writing <laughs> this down. I am Walk. the queen of the pivot. Oof. I am the queen of the pivot. And people are always like, how, how, are, how are you able to know when it's time to pivot? It's time to pivot when things go from being a challenge to a stress. Now, listen, it's not every time going to be something as cut and dry as like, okay, I'm out, right? There may be some level of compromise that has to happen, a certain consensus that has to be reached, but there is nothing shameful about recognizing this is draining me and thus I need to relieve it. <laughs> how do you know how to de delineate between stress and challenge? Because a challenge makes you stronger and stress makes you weaker. You sleep well when you're challenged because you just, you know what I'm saying? You done worked it out and you tired, you, but you sleep like a baby. When you stressed, you can't sleep. Waking up, middle of the night, think about mm. it. How am I going to fix this? What am I doing? Damn, I'm not eating. I'm not sleeping. I'm being mean to people. Stress. A challenge? Nah, a challenge engages you. It enriches you. And it educates you. It informs you. It can do all of those things. You mm. can use that. And that rubric can be used for relationships. It can be used for jobs. Shit, it can be used for a book. You're reading a book and it's stressing you out. Let that book go. Go read something fun. That was the great multi-hyphenate Amanda Seals with some hard-earned wisdom about knowing and respecting her limits. She's on tour right now with Smart, Funny, and Black, and you're going to want to check it out if you haven't already. We stay true to Amanda's abilities to talk about anything and everything in this week's Plus episode. So be ready to laugh and learn a lot. And as always, remember, stay positive and let's keep it moving. The Limits is produced by Devin Schwartz, Deba Motosham, Max Friedman, and Lena Sunskeri. Video production by Kaz Fantoni, Langston Sessoms, Christina Shaman, Iman Young, and Nick Michael. Our executive producers are Karen Kinney, Veralyn Williams, and Yolanda Sangueni. Our senior VP of programming and audience development is Anya Grumman. Music by Ramteen Arab Louie. Special thanks to Christina Hardy, Rudy Correa, and Charlotte Riggi.